If you'd like to read along, we'll be in John's Gospel, chapter 3. We'll read verses 17 through 21. We'll take our text from verse 18. When we mention John 3, of course, you probably think of John 3.16. I wish you would think that this is a very personal discourse between Jesus and Nicodemus, a man of the Pharisees, a ruler in that regard. So, uh, very personal, intimate conversation here, what we're reading. We're reading Jesus' words there following verse 16 and verse 17, John 3. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. And that's the end of the discourse with Nicodemus. I want you to imagine something as we begin here by way of introduction. I want you to imagine, and you may have done this already at some point in your life, I've had dreams and such along this nature, and it was pretty upsetting, but imagine that you are accused of a crime. Imagine you end up being arrested for that crime and charged for that crime. And then that you get out on bail, but you're going to have to go to trial because you've been charged with a crime. <laughs> However, you feel like that you are completely innocent and that an examination of evidence will prove you to be totally innocent. You are confident that you have alibis that are sufficient to achieve your acquittal in that trial. And then imagine that immediately before the process begins for your trial and your charge to begin, that your attorney, whom you have, tells you, well, this has already been settled. You're already condemned. You would think, what? How can that be? Well, it's already been decided. You've already been judged guilty and you're condemned. And nothing's going to change it. And probably our immediate reply would be, well, what about the trial? I mean, uh, the, the jury, if there's one to be convened, has not been convened. And, and we haven't went through the trial. And the evidence has not been presented. And the judge or the jury hadn't made a decision. And he just looked at you and said, it don't matter. You've already been condemned. All that's just going to be a formality. But the end result's going to be the same thing. You're already condemned. I mean, I can't imagine the shock, the fear, the terror, and all that would race through a person if those events happened like that. Well, sadly, we know there have been events like that, that the trial was a formality, that the consensus was that everybody, for some sad reasons, those things have happened. But in reality, what I've just described to you is really a brief description of what sinners think about eternal judgment and the end judgment. 
Sinners are deceived by Satan and deceive themselves into thinking that some way, somehow, if there is a judgment of God, I will get out. I will escape. I will be acquitted. And I wish more sinners would think about it because the Bible asks the questions, how will you escape? That is a very pertinent question. If you reject so great a salvation, how do you think in the end you're going to escape? But I remember when I was a sinner, I was constantly thinking about when I was convicted of sin and thinking about judgment and possibility of going to hell some way out. What about you? You know, that's the way the mind of sinners works, isn't it? And as we were saying in Sunday school, it's all messed up and all wrong. We've got every bit of it wrong. But the text says in verse 18, Jesus said, He that believeth on him, speaking of himself, is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And that's our subject. Condemned already. Now, again, I gave the description to get your attention about what we're talking about. And what I described to you is not necessarily hypothetical. Because Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he got close to the very end of that sermon in Matthew chapter 7, in verses 21 and 23, he said... Concerning final judgment, not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom. He said, in that day, there will be those, and I'm paraphrasing, who will say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and have not we done great wonderful works, and done this and that? And Jesus said, and I will say unto them, depart from me, I never knew you. So we see there, as Jesus described, people are going to make excuses for their acquittal. But they will still be condemned then, just as they are already condemned now. So that wasn't totally hypothetical what I described to you. But this kind of has its root, what we're talking about here, in being condemned in a big lie that has been prevalent throughout human history. That is, we're talking about, will there be a judgment of God? And that depends upon whether the sinner even believes there is a God. And if he believes there is a God, and his conscience and the law written in his heart dictates that, yeah, you're going to have to give an account someday, then again, the idea and the process is, well, how can I make it or how can I not be condemned when that happens? And the big lie with all kinds of what I would call historical variations is this, that it's going to boil down to which weighs out the most, the good or the bad, right? I mean, that's just as underlying in our DNA, it seems like, as the blood that courses through our veins, isn't it? Seems like no matter what continent or what ethnic group or whether they be idolaters, heathens, or whatever they are, whatever they believe in, there's some idea that the end result or end judgment of whether you make it to 
wherever you want to go or you get sent to a place you don't want to go, all religions have those variations, it's going to boil down to whether you have enough good works to outweigh the bad works. And there's nothing that can be further from biblical truth than that, is there? Where in the world did that idea originate from? Well, I think I know. I think it's in the fig leaves Adam and Eve was wearing, really. That something they could do would overcome something else they had done. I believe that's the real root of it. But again, think what a big lie that is. That in a future in judgment, everybody will either be condemned or acquitted based upon whether the good they've done outweighs the bad they've done. It's simply not the Bible. Now, you know we have in our judicial system the lady with the scales of justice blindfolded, don't you? And you know on any scale, you know you got two sides, right? And I mean, it's a measurement that goes back in human history. You put a certain weight on one tells you the amount of goods you got on the other side, so forth and so on. So the human idea is, and the devil's lie is, that all your good deeds will be put on one side, and all your bad deeds and sins will be put on the other, and then and only then in the end will you know which one lifts up and which one drops down. And of course, you want those good works to be, uh, you know, pull that scale down on that side. What does the Bible say about that? To believe such an idea is to ignore the clear evidence of Scripture. It is either to be ignorant of what happened in Genesis chapter 3 concerning the fall of man and what's transcended upon all human beings, or to be in denial of it. There's not going to be any weighing out of your good and your bad, nor anybody's good, nor anybody's bad, because we're condemned already. You won't have to wait till then to find out if you're condemned because of your sin. Because our text says condemned already. Again, such an idea denies or is willful ignorance of the effect of the fall. What, what saith the scripture concerning what happened in Genesis 3? When our first parents transgressed. And how that sin was passed upon all of us. So that we're all sinners. What does Romans 3 say? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. There's none that seeketh after God. I like the conciseness with which Solomon spoke in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 20. There's not a just man or woman upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Not one. Again, I'll use the old phrase I heard many, many years ago because it certainly makes the point to me. I hope it does to you. If you put every human being in a paper bag and opened up the top and poured them out, there wouldn't be one come out first. All the same. We're all in the same boat. Not one person will be ahead of anybody else. We'd all come out together. None righteous, none seeking God, no good. 
Well, we live in again in this arena of people thinking, well, you know, there's a little good in everybody. I've never heard the chapter and verse where that's at. Have you? If you ever do, please share that with me. I've read, I'm not going to brag about how much I've read the Bible, but I've read it a few times and I've never found that yet. But I find what I just told you over and over again. There's no good. There's none righteous. And think about the blasphemous thought of bringing your good works to God's judgment hall or God's scales of justice. What does Isaiah say about our good works? Isaiah 64, 6. Your good works summed up as works of righteousness. All our righteousness are as filthy rags. Can you imagine bringing your dirty laundry and that would be bad enough, but the dirty rags there is something worse than that. Bringing that into God's holy presence and claiming you deserve heaven, unbelievable. It's just blasphemy. It's an insult upon God's holiness, God's integrity, and everything else to do so. But as Jesus said, individuals will try that. So this idea of weighing good and bad in a scale is, is straight out of hell. It's not from the Bible. And it seems to be ingrained in the hearts of all sinners. And you notice that Jesus' emphasis here in the text that we've read is, doesn't have anything to mention about works. Did Jesus talk to Nicodemus about works? What Jesus talked to Nicodemus about? He talked to him about the new birth. You must be born again. He didn't say you got to have enough good works to outweigh your bad works to enter the kingdom. He said, except you be born again, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. He didn't stress anything to do with works. Condemned already. The word condemned is icy cold, isn't it? The word condemned is a hopeless word, isn't it? Very negative inference. There's nothing to get happy about with the word condemned. It didn't matter if you see it posted on a building or an individual in a courtroom is condemned for their crimes. It's an unpleasant thought. What is, how would we sum up or define condemned? Four times it's used here in three verses, 17, 18, 19. Condemned, condemned twice, and condemnation. How would we define that? Well, I'm just going to put a definition together here that makes sense to me. I hope it does to you. But a condemnation of anything is a judgment by somebody. There has to be somebody make a judgment for something to be condemned. If a building's condemned in the city limits, then somebody in the city with authority had to exercise their authority to condemn that building. All right? If somebody is condemned in a courtroom, then the judge or a jury is exercising their authority based on the evidence to condemn that in. So it is a judgment. 
And it is a judgment when it comes to persons, a judgment based upon guilt and evidence thereof, is it not? Would that be a suitable definition? A person, a man, a woman, somebody in, in a trial, a criminal trial, is condemned or judged to be condemned based upon the guilt, commission of a crime, and the evidence thereof. Well, what about sinners? Condemned already. If that's the definition, then as Jesus said, and we know Jesus never told a lie and couldn't tell a lie, as sinners, we are condemned already. Think of the people, even within the realm of Christianity, certain denominations of Christianity, that spend their lives in misery, fretting, worrying, praying, and doing all kinds of rites and ceremonies and religious activity, hoping that in that day they will not be condemned. I feel sorry for those people. My heart goes out to those people. Because you don't have to wait. If you know you're condemned already, <laughs> you can be delivered already also. It's not a waiting game. And you know the Bible doesn't, doesn't tell us that, that, that you know you have to wait to know. If you believe what's in this book, you'll know right now. You can know today, whatever state of your heart is, if you read this book, whether you're going to heaven and hell if you took your next breath, if your next breath was your last, by what's said in this book, I, I could tell you, you could read it, your eternal destiny. It's not going to be waiting for millenniums down the road to find out. But many people do that. And I'll never forget the testimony of a man, a good friend of mine became an even better friend when he believed that told me about his religious family that lived in misery who believe, and lived in misery because they believed in works for salvation. And they were fearful that in spite of all their works, a final sin that they may not repent of or whatever before they died at the very end would condemn them. And he said, I never wanted anything to do with their religion. He said, that's more miserable than I was. A lot of religion is just that. It doesn't give you anything. It just makes you more miserable. If you're going to have to wait and see whether you make it to heaven or hell. Condemned already. That's what Jesus said. He that believeth not is condemned already. You don't have to wait and see. What is the condemnation of the sinner already that Jesus was speaking of? It is obviously a personal condemnation. But why and how could he say that? What condemns the sinner? What declares the sinner already condemned? What's the proof of that? Well, the Bible in and of itself, declares, in essence, that all who have sinned in Adam, which is everybody, are already condemned. And that's one of the reasons in Adam. But the Word of God tells us we're condemned simply because we're sinners. The law of God tells us we're condemned because we have broken that law. The rejection of the gospel, which Christ is talking about, manifests we have broken Again, the obedience that we are commanded 
to the gospel to obey. And it declares sinners already condemned. You don't have to become condemned. You're already condemned. And again, the point of this goes back to what happened in Genesis 3. I want to give you two, two things here to dwell upon, two points. But we go to Romans chapter 5, and it's very clearly written out there for us about how we're already condemned even by hereditary fallen nature in Adam. Familiar scripture, Romans 5, 12, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death passed by death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Now if we could find somebody that didn't die but just kept living on forever, we'd find somebody that wasn't already condemned. But you know what? People just keep dying, proving that they are condemned by and in Adam's sin and transgression. And you drop down to verse 16, and it becomes even more clearly, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift for the judgment. And what do we define condemnation to be? A judgment. Judgment was by one Adam to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Same thing in verse 18, different words. Therefore, as by the offense... Offense there being a criminal act of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation. And if we only needed one verse of Scripture to substantiate what our text says, right there it is. By the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Already condemned. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon men unto justification of life. So we're already condemned simply because we are in Adam and descendants of Adam and his sin was passed upon us and when we were born into this world we were as sinners born already condemned. Secondly, by our own sin actions and works we are condemned. Not just in Adam. You can't, you can't just point a finger at Adam and blame it all on him. I mentioned the word, the law, and the gospel. What does God say? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, body, and soul, and so forth and so on. Has any sinner ever done that? No. No. Condemned then. You came short. You have not fulfilled the holy law. The first and great commandment. What about loving your neighbor as yourself? Have you done that wholly and completely? No. You've sinned. You condemn yourself by your sin and by your actions in that regard. Or we could summarize all of that by your works. Your, so you see in Adam it's who you are and in you it's your own works and what you do. And both of them condemn you. One of them would be sufficient, but they both condemn us as sinners. We have failed in our obedience to God's law, and the unbelieving sinner fails in his obedience to the gospel to repent and to believe it, therefore condemned. Verse 18 is the proof of it there. Again, he is already condemned because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. To, to not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God is the equivalent of not believing the gospel message. 
The name of Jesus is what? Defined as in Matthew 1.21, you will call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. The gospel message is that. Jesus is the only way of salvation. You're a sinner and you need to be saved. Reject that message, you're already condemned. You manifest it by your rejection in that regard. And that's what the Bible's here to do, is to correct our thinking on that. Uh, you know, in this passage we read, we don't have time to get into all of the light and the darkness of it, but verse 19 says, this is the condemnation or the manifestation of being condemned already, that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now, light there certainly is pointing to Jesus, the object of the gospel, who was the true light. But at the same time, the Word of God is light. And of course, you can't separate the Word from Christ. Christ is a living Word, and this is a written Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know. So again, we have the written Word, the living God, but both of them are light. When we preach the gospel, we're preaching the light of the world because we're preaching the object of that gospel, Jesus, the true light. And that verse said, men love darkness rather than light. So their very rejection of what God has said in His law, in His gospel, or in His Son, the fulfillment of both, is to condemn oneself here, now, and already. Very clearly. Manifested by coming or running. What did Adam and Eve do? They ran. What do sinners do? Ran. Verse 20, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So again, actions, as they say, speak louder than words and manifest the condemnation that is already there by the actions that we do. Now, there's deliverance from condemnation now. This is a part we love to talk about, isn't it? Because the first part of our text says, He that believeth on him is not condemned. Now that's what people are hoping for. That's what some people are waiting to see in the end. But it's something that can be known at this very moment. Jesus just said it. He laid down the condition. He that believeth on Him, Christ, is not condemned. Verse 18 summed up. The believer is not condemned. The unbeliever is condemned. That's it. The person that comes to Christ by faith for the remission of their sins in His sacrificial death is not condemned and will never be condemned. But he who hears that, rejects that, is already condemned. And you know sinners need to know that. That's why I'm preaching this to whoever may hear me, you know. If you're lost today, you don't have to wait and see. We can tell you on the authority of God's Word, Jesus said it, you're already condemned. If you are an unbeliever and you do not believe what God has said in this book about you and about His Son, you are already condemned. Don't worry about the trial. 
Don't worry about the process in the end. That's not going to change a thing. Don't bring any evidence and certainly don't bring your works in filthy rags. That's just an insult to a holy God. God can speak and I can speak and tell you what God has already said because Jesus said it. You're already condemned. And justly so. Verse 17, God didn't send His Son in the world to condemn the world. He didn't have to. It already stood condemned in Adam, didn't it? But to what? That the world through Him might be saved. And let me say to you, that's the only way anything can be saved. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, is God's only appointed and acceptable means of salvation, of acquittal, of forgiveness, of deliverance from condemnation and damnation. That's it. Only one way. The way, the truth, and the light. Come to Him. Come to Him and be freed from that condemnation. Now, the last verse, verse 21 that we read, has something very interesting to say about that. We just read in the previous verse about how sinners naturally hate the light. That's right, hate. Hate God. Hate God's message. Hate God's Son. It was hate that crucified Jesus. By the Jews, by Romans, by sinners, in essence by me and you. We condemned Him just like those who stood on that day and condemned Him. Because they were sinners and we're sinners. People may think, well, if I'd have been there, I wouldn't have done that. Yes, you would. Your heart's no different than theirs is. The Bible says here, everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Who does evil? Everybody. Why they do evil? They're sons of Adam in that regard. And they come not to the light lest their deeds may be reproved. I grew up in the South. Anybody that's ever been in the South, there's a lot of roaches and anybody that's ever walked in a room in any place where there's roaches infested very bad and flipped on the light, I don't know how you can not think of it when you read this verse. I mean, it's, it's the best illustration I would know of. Not being cute, but buddy, roaches can get gone in a hurry when the light comes on. And I can't remember when, even maybe, <laughs> I don't know... Uh, uh, probably as a teenager, very early as a Christian, that when I read this verse, that's what I have always thought of. And when Jesus came into the world, that's exactly what happened. Sinners began scurrying for cover. And that's what sinners still do today. And again, it's an ancient action because I mentioned it before. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did, didn't it? What they do? What do sinners do? What's the only thing sinners will always do of their own nature? Run and hide. Just like a light when the rut, rope, uh, when the light comes. Like a roach when the light comes on. Roaches are very comfortable in the darkness. Just like evildoers are comfortable in the darkness. But verse 21 says, He that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be man manifest that they are wrought in God. Coming to the light 
goes against human nature. It's not going to happen in and of the sinner by themselves. When it says, he that doeth truth, that simply means doing what's right, doing what you're told, doing what you're commanded to do. And the gospel says what? Come. The gospel says come, repent, acknowledge your sins. Bring your sins and lay them at the feet of Christ and see if he will not forgive you of every one of them. That's the gospel message. The person that does this has their deeds manifested that they are wrought in God, it says. Now, when I read that, I think about that. Who will come? Well, again, the Bible makes it clear. Jesus said, you will not come to me that you might have a life. No man or woman or sinner of any kind will naturally come. We do like the roaches. We run from the light, from the word, from the truth. Because it convicts us. It exposes us. What does that light do to the roaches? It exposes them. What does God's Word do to sinners? It exposes them. That's why they run from it. It was God's declaration. In the day you eat thereof, you'll surely die. They caused Adam and Eve to run and hide and cover themselves with fig leaves. Hasn't changed. It will not change. But to come to the light which exposes your sins means that like Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, something had to change for a person to do that because that's not natural. When I read this verse and I think about it, one illustration in Scripture comes to my mind. It's in Luke chapter 7. You might remember, I'm not going to go there and read it, but you might remember Jesus was invited into the house for a meal by a man named Simon who was a Pharisee. And when Jesus and others were in there and seated, and there came a woman, which the Bible says was a sinner. Pretty much says it all. She was a sinner. She came into that house uninvited, brought a box of ointment, did not approach Jesus to the face, but as he reclined, was behind him where his feet would have been. And she weepingly washed his feet with her tears, dried them with her hair, didn't say a word, and anointed him with that ointment. Now when I read verse 21, I say, the person that does right or is obedient cometh to the light that their deeds may be made manifest for their rotten God. I, for some reason, I think of that woman. Everybody knew who she was, what she was. But she came to Jesus. And in coming to Jesus, it revealed what she was, but it also revealed the sincerity of her need. And her actions revealed that, didn't they, in a very clear way. And you know the story, Jesus had to rebuke, and he did, mildly, Simon the Pharisee, because Simon's sitting over there all puffed up, thinking if he knew what kind of woman this was, <coughs> he wouldn't even let her touch him. He was thinking that he was holier than she was, when in fact she was being more obedient than he was. And that's just such a marvelous scene. And Jesus, 
again, he was not harsh, but he asked a question about being forgiven, one who had much to be forgiven and one who less, and then reminded Simon, you haven't washed my feet when I come in here. You haven't anointed me when I came in here, but this woman did. And then those beautiful, wonderful words. Remember, she hadn't said a thing. There's no record she said anything. The only sound that was being made by her was her weeping and washing and anointing. And Jesus uttered those marvelous words to somebody that didn't say a word to him. Thy sins are forgiven. And the person that was already condemned is condemned no more. Just like that. That's what verse 21 is saying as far as I'm concerned. The best way for me to preach it or teach it or illustrate it is through what that woman said. Through that woman's actions, thy sins are forgiven. What would cause someone like her to come to someone like him and do something like that. <laughs> exactly what Jesus has been talking to Nicodemus about. A new birth. A new birth. And when Jesus told that woman, thy sins are forgiven, it just don't get no better than that. I think I mentioned this a week or so ago or recently that no higher authority could be appealed to than the authority of he who spoke those words. That wasn't good for a day, a month, or a year. That's good for eternity when he says it. Now, I've got to inject this because I want it to be clear and I want people to know. When some man tells you your sins is forgiven, it don't amount to, as we used to say in Arkansas, spit. Because nobody has the power to forgive sin but Jesus. There never has been a priest of any kind anywhere that could forgive sin, and there never will be. There's only one, the great high priest, the man who told that woman, thy sins are forgiven. Now the beauty of that, as I wrap this up, is in... Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Please turn there and look at that with me as we finish. Paul says, and note the boldness of this statement. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You do not have to wait and see. You can know right now. <clears throat> In fact, the purpose of this message is to cause those to hear it to know that either you're already condemned or you're already forgiven. It's one or the other. That's it. That's it. That simple. Now, now, isn't that a blessing? 
God, if His sovereign will had been, it could have been a wait-and-see thing if He desired it. Hypothetical, okay. But the blessing of our redemption is you know now. You don't wait and see. It's not like an inheritance or something else where you've got to wait till somebody dies or wait till the circumstances are there to know what you're going to get. <laughs> it's not funny, but it just made me think. Remember when we were kids, box cracker jacks. We was more excited about what kind of prize was in the bottom of that box than we was about the cracker jacks. You never knew what you was going to get, but you couldn't wait to see. A lot of people are dreading to see. You can know now. Either you're condemned already and you are just awaiting the formal sentence and execution. It's like being on death row. Condemned. Who's on death row? Condemned people. What are they doing there? They're just waiting the sentence, the execution to be carried out. Either you're there and there's going to be no change or no alteration in the outcome. Condemned is condemned. The law is not going to change. The demands of the gospel is not going to change. God's not going to change. So you'll be as guilty then as you are right now. Nothing will change. Or, as Jesus said, to him that believeth, he's not condemned. That's it. Faith in Christ and looking to Christ for forgiveness and remission of sins acquits one from the condemnation in ourselves and in Adam. So if you are condemned already and you feel condemned and that is pressed upon your heart, your conscience, your mind, the remedy is very simple. It's a person, Jesus Christ. Believe upon Him and thou shalt be saved and you can know this very moment that there is no longer any condemnation. I can remember the day that that happened to me and the Lord saved me. I knew right then and right then, right then at that moment when my sins were taken away, I had nothing to fear anymore. And I have not feared judgment and I have not feared hell and I have not feared God like I did when I was lost since that day. That's the peace that God gives in the person of Christ. You can have it if you desire it. Ask and you shall receive.